As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Mike, I know we were going to launch season 11 today, but... Yeah, but... But what, Michael? Uh, we're just going to have to wait one more week. One more week? Okay, why are we waiting one more week? Because <laughs> we just need to add a little bit of polish to it. It's close. It's going to be good. Uh, but, look, we're just going to wait one more week, and it'll all be ready. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm getting antsy, Michael. I want to get going, but <laughs> that's fine. I, uh, more polish is just fine. So, so wait, what are we doing this week, then? Um, I was hoping you knew. <laughs> Michael, I, I no, I don't. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I do have a really good story I could tell in the meantime. It involves two economists. Oh, gosh. Is this like two economists walk into a bar? This sounds like the start of a really bad joke. <laughs> well, 
they probably would walk into a bar together, but they actually met while running. And one is actually the ex-chief economist from Spotify. And he was also the first chief economist employed by a major tech company. So look, they've got some clout. All right, well, then what will we be talking about? Bubbles. Bubbles? Yep, that's all I'm gonna say for now. Let's roll the intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. All right, so today we're welcoming two economists to the show. And it's not every day that we have economists on the show at all. So I welcome the change, Michael. Yeah, so today we have... Will Page, the author of Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption, and the former chief economist of Spotify. And I'm Richard Kramer, uh, independent analyst, uh, founder of Arite Research, and uh, having spent the last 30 years looking at the intersection of tech and stock markets. Okay, not too shabby at all. Now, you might be wondering how they ended up working as economists inside the tech industry. So I coined the term rockonomist, which I know my colleague Richard Kramer tends to vomit on his jeans every time he hears it. But uh, a rockonomist is essentially somebody who got lucky, got to merge his two passions. One side, it was economics. My dad taught me economics from the age of 11. The other side, music, longtime DJ, producer, and just an absolute music aficionado, as you could call it. So what struck me as interesting was nobody had merged the two passions before. I mean, there was thousands, hundreds of thousands of lawyers in the music industry, but not one economist. And I made the ballsy move to try and become the first. And I succeeded in 2006. I moved from my hometown, Dunbar in Scotland, which is where John Muir is from. He needs no introduction to Americans. Okay, so for those who are unsure who John Muir is, John Muir was also known as John of the Mountains and father of the national parks. He was an influential Scottish-American advocate for the preservation of wilderness in the United States of America. He established Yosemite National Park. But his racist beliefs are also well-documented, so we can just move right along. Down to London to become the chief economist of the Performing Rights Society, which is like ASCAP or BMI in the United States. And then after a period there, moved across to the big green Swedish streaming machine, Spotify, back when we didn't even have an HR department and started scaling that business up as well. So very, very fortunate to merge those two passions of music and economics together. So why did it take so long for an economist to be employed by a tech company? Well, I tell a story in my book and it's in the opening section of the first chapter, which was back in the cocaine capitalism of the late 90s when everything was selling. You could put Method Man with Texas and sell 5 million singles, you know. Um, Back in those days, they used to sell CDs by the weight of pallet. So I would come up to you and say, hey, I got a bunch of CDs you want to buy. You know, here they are. You would actually say, what's in the pallet? You know, what have we got here? Shania Twain, Def Leppard? No, you'd say, how much does that pallet weigh? (laughs) About 30 kilos of CDs. Great, I'll give you this much. It's all going to sell. And I use that as a, a very real example of how it worked back then. But how much data science is involved in a weight of pallet of CDs? Not a lot. Now, let's remember, we can laugh at it, but they were making more money then than they do now, and that's before you adjust for inflation. So there's something to be said by selling CDs by weight of pellet, but it was just so easy to make money. Then along came Napster, and you think about what Napster and all those piracy sites did. They took the word copyright and they upended it. You know, copyright stands for the right to control copying. And Napster, Winamp, the Pirate Bay, Kazaar, uTorrent, many of which came from Sweden, actually, 
these piracy sites made copying free. You know, it made the entire Wells repertoire free and on demand. So the interesting thing there was, you know, law lawyers weren't going to get you out of that mess. They were going to get you into an even bigger mess. They spent millions in litigation suing consumers, as you know, in America, suing websites, suing, you know, um, ISP providers, internet service providers, and they lost billions in revenue. And you can't keep on spending millions and losing billions. So when you're staring to that abyss, into staring to that much darkness, you need to look for different solutions. And that's where I got to raise my hand and said, well, here's an economist who wants to try and do things differently. Okay, and what about Richard? What's his background? I've always been fascinated since university days with communication technology uh, and its impact on society. And after deciding at a very early stage, um, really upon graduating university in the States, to go back, uh, to leave the States, and go back to Europe where my parents uh, hailed from. Um, I landed a, jobs, a job in a tech company in the UK, eventually made my way into the city of London, which is the equivalent of Wall Street to be an analyst. And it's always been fascinating to me to look at a wide range of technologies and try to understand almost through the lens of an anthropologist or an ethnographer, what's the narrative? What's the underlying theme for these technologies and for these companies? Because every company has stories it tells about itself and it tells to itself. And uh, I ended up working for one of the big, biggest investment banks for four years as the number one rated tech analyst in London but really was disturbed by, in the first tech bubble back in 99, 2000 era, about the, all the, the dodgy IPOs and, and half-baked companies that were coming to market and claiming that they were going to change the world. And I had this completely crazy idea before Elliot Spitzer and Jack Grubman and Henry Blodgett became names that people became familiar with, uh, of, of starting a research boutique for investors that would help them understand what they're investing in. And that's my company. It's called Arate, which stands for Excellence and Virtue in Ancient Greek. And we're really, our mission is to look through the hype and try to get a real sense of what companies do, what their impact will be, and do it without conflicts of interest, because whether it's industry analysts who get paid to put you in the top right-hand portion of the magic quadrant, or the investment banks who obviously have a huge vested interest in keeping the, the treadmill of IPOs and mergers and acquisitions going, most of those folks don't necessarily have the best interests of investors and or they don't have the best interest of, of being clear and, and honest about what they're looking at at heart. So we've really had 21 years at Arate of just trying to look through the hype and the nonsense uh, and, and to decode it for investors and help them follow rule number one of Warren Buffett's rule number one of investing, which is don't lose money. Uh, and rule number two is invest in things you understand and uh, help them understand what they're investing in. Now they host the podcast Bubble Trouble together 
which we'll get to shortly. But first, they met in London while running during the COVID lockdowns. Like the pandemic, like through moments of suppression, you kind of get creativity. And the pandemic definitely was an example of that. Just making some of the best friends of my life, you know, Richard being one of them, during the most surreal period they'll ever live. And, you know, that's when you start to think differently about projects you could do. I'm in book mode just now working through the hardback paperback to come. What can you do in this kind of limbo period? And yeah, it's been a surreal experience of one I'm grateful for, so, you know, weird kind of way, but yeah, to be able to do things you would never have done otherwise, to be able to beat people you would never have met otherwise. So Bubble Trouble was started as a bit of a warning based on trends that they were seeing, right? Yes. Here's Richard. Bubble Trouble was really born out of the dual conviction of Will and myself that we are both reliving history in terms of these bubbles, whether it's the Trons and the computer companies that you saw listed and went to huge valuations in the 70s and 80s on the stock market or the 90s, late 90s, early 2000, when your dentist was recommending which optical networking stock to buy <laughs> to, to the, all of the, the, the nonsense about monetizing eyeballs. I mean, what a gross phrase, right? Um, you know, and, and, and we both have a, a similarly skeptical, I don't have his Scottish dour uh, accent to, to pull it off, but a similarly skeptical and humorous take on just all of the self-important BS that you get from these companies and all the world-changing rhetoric. And equally, uh, we both have a fascination with business models, with with economics, with how markets work. And uh, Will and I both appreciate each other's ability to go off on just completely uh, hilarious rants about uh, one or another aspect of technology or markets, much of which we have to tone down for the um, for the podcast because they would be far too profanity laced to, uh, to to put out on 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 the airwaves. Yeah, if I can add a t two cents worth there. One, a book I keep by my bedside, and two, a book I used to read as a child. By my bedside, I keep a book by Heyman Minsky who hopefully needs no introduction to your listeners. Hold that thought. We're going to tell you who Heyman Minsky is for anyone unsure right after a quick break. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Okay, so before the break, Will Page was discussing the book that he keeps by his bedside by Heyman Minsky. I don't believe he said the name, but I believe the book is Stabilizing an Unstable Economy. That's right. Heyman Minsky was an American economist whose research attempted to provide an understanding and explanation of the characteristics of financial crises. 
which he attributed to swings of potential fragile financial systems. He supported sub-government intervention in financial markets, opposed some of the financial deregulation policies that were really popular in the 1980s. He stressed the importance of the Federal Reserve as a lender of last resort and argued against over-accumulation of private debt in the financial markets. Famously, his theories about debt accumulation received revived attention in the media during the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008. Minsky argued that a key mechanism that pushes an economy towards a crisis is an accumulation of debt by the non-government sector. And we all know a stable genius who loves accumulating debt. Right, stable genius. Heyman identified three types of borrowers that contribute to the accumulation of insolvent debt. Hedge borrowers, speculative borrowers, and Ponzi borrowers. The hedge borrower can make debt payments covering interest and principal from current cash flows from investments. For the speculative borrower, the cash flow from the investments can service the debt, i.e. cover the interest due. But the borrower must regularly roll over or reborrow from the principal. The Ponzi borrower borrows based on the belief that the appreciation of the value of the asset will be sufficient to refinance the debt, but could not make sufficient payments on interest or principal with the cash flow from the investments themselves. Only the appreciating asset value can keep the Ponzi borrower afloat. And this is essentially what happened in 2008 on a very, very large scale. Thank you, Heyman Minsky, for your insights. Okay, now back to Will Page. It was originally kind of conceived this notion of a credit crunch when liquidity drives up in markets. And of course, in 2006, that started to emerge into reality, which led to the financial crisis. But the title of the book in Heyman Minsky has a subheading which says, why stability in itself is destabilizing. And it's just an interesting way of thinking about capital markets. When we've all got it good, you know, when government budget balances are in check, markets are growing, GDP's up, inflation's under control. When you hit that sweet spot where, where you just couldn't complain about a single economic indicator, you should start reading Heyman-Minsky and realize why stability is in itself destabilizing because then we get a little bit too cocky, a little bit too over-optimistic. We party a little bit too hard at the casino and you know what follows. And then the book that I read as a child was, of course, you know, The Boy Who Cried Wolf. And it's just weird. Like we have this, it's a financial crisis. Oh, 10 years on, should be. You know, they seem to come about with like a, a worrying amount of regularity, you know, a predictable level of regularity as well. At economics at Edinburgh University, I studied the Argentinian default, to which most professors say, which one? Not the last one, not the one before that, the one in the 80s. I did that one. Yeah, so every 15 years, they go back to the IMF and say, sorry, we broke our promise, we're bankrupt again. And that always fascinated me as a student. And then what Rich has been able to teach me over the, the past year or so is just why these things keep on happening. So we take about Heyman Minsky, why stability is in itself destabilizing. One of the reasons why is we have this gravitational pull towards getting ourselves stuck into bubble trouble once again. You know, that's the thing which I want to, I think we can give the listeners is, you know, guidance on how to spot the bubbles and try and avoid the troubles. And Richard has a great story, actually, about a professor he had in graduate school. One of the professors that really influenced me in, in graduate school, he was um, uh, really a polymath and was doing a lot of different things, but he initially trained as an ethnographer, an anthropologist. And instead of going to do his field work in Papua New Guinea or in, in, in the Congo, he went, um, he worked for a very famous ethnographer called Irving Goffman, Goffman, and he went 
20 blocks away from the University of Pennsylvania where he was doing his PhD. And he worked in a, as an auto mechanic in a garage. And he wrote about the environment there as if he was visiting an alien culture. And at one point he was in the garage and someone came in waving a gun as one did in the garages in the seventies, looking for their, their cars uh, to, to, to get on a Friday night. And he realized at this point, he couldn't say, hey, man, back off. I'm just an ethnographer here to study your way of life. And I've always been fascinated looking at companies, whether when I started out as an analyst in the 90s, looking at Nokia in Finland or Ericsson in Sweden, which were the hot technology companies in Europe, you know, understanding the cultures of the companies, understanding how they really operated their, their internal narratives was to me as important as understanding and reading their financials, which these days you do need the sort of secret squirrel decoder ring to understand all the obfuscation that goes into the financials. So to blend those two passions of understanding narrative, and I love reading fiction, and understanding the the numbers and the finance side of it, um, putting those together is... is and with Will, uh, I'm finding someone who is is great at, at zooming out. And I always think it's important to go to that higher level of abstraction and say, okay, I know you're talking about a specific case, but what that really strikes me as is, and he'll throw out something from government statistics or from macroeconomic theory that, that tells the same story on a, at a much bigger scale. Again, just jumping on that, just hearing Richard talk for the first time, I've heard that story about the ethnographer I'm a huge fan of Ronald Coase, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, he actually won the Nobel Prize when he was at the University of Dundee back home in Scotland. And his, <laughs> and his response to the Swedish committee was, why did it take so long? So he's quite sort of <laughs> boisterous. Modest. <laughs> Modest guy. But he, he had this great lesson, which I don't think enough economists understand, which is the way to apply economics is to look at a business, go into the factory plant, understand the people. And if you can tease out some economics, then good luck. But it doesn't necessarily follow that there'll be economics there. A lot of people will apply a known model to a problem, which may not actually fit. But, you know, he was like, just why don't you visit, visit the company? Why don't you understand how the factory plant works? Why don't you understand division of labor? And then from there, you might find some economics if you're lucky. And it's, it's not to be too presumptive about economics. If it's there, hopefully you can find it. But you know, one of the reasons why you talk about the invisible hand is sometimes the invisible hand is not actually there to be seen. Okay, now there are so many books that I want to read coming out of this conversation, but first we should take another quick break. Okay, before the break, Will Page and Richard Kramer were discussing some of the people who have shaped their worldview as economists. But slowly, the conversation veered into big data. So in the eighth chapter of my book, it's called Big Data, Big Mistakes, which I think is a very apt headline for the answer I'm about to give. And I see in there a concept which was inspired to me by an ethnographer, our second ethnographer of this podcast, Trisha Wang. Incredible woman, a fantastic guest for your show, which she calls it quantification bias where we skew our interests or understandings to what we can measure, and we ignore and dismiss as irrelevant what we can't. And when I heard that, it just struck a chord of me because back at Spotify, you know, we had this joke that we're building a dashboard every minute. You know, dashboards coming with everything and anything, you know, tableau parties, literally tableau parties after work. Like, let's party hard with our tableau dashboards. See who's got the sexiest one. 
The best dashboard I ever built was one which showed how many people are using your dashboards. It's just you and your mum, I'm afraid. <laughs> it might be a work of art, but not many people are appreciating it. But it, it goes back to this, this pendulum has swung so hard in the direction of quantification bias. We need to swing it back. One of the, the purposes of that chapter is to say, instead of understanding the data points, understand the human beings with pulses that created those data points. Have you ever been to the customer support team in your company? Do you actually know you have one? Do you know, even know where it is? And the answer to those questions seems to be no, no, and no. And then you know you've got a problem. So, I mean, I made the effort to sit in customer support at Spotify and listen to the phone calls coming in. Sit with engineers who could take those phone calls and build product solutions in real time. But there's not enough of that just now. We are, we've, we've, we've drank the Kool-Aid on quantification bias and we've got to swing the pendulum back. And, and I think that's something that when you mention SaaS, um, that is presumed to be catnip to investors. So you never ask, what does the software do? Or <laughs> how many features do you still have to deploy? Or what's on that roadmap for fourth quarter 2026 that you're promised will fix all the problems that have been, right? But, but if I just say SaaS enough, that's going to be... You know, and, and at a certain point, as we all know, with all sorts of various substances that we've ingested or, or uh, whatever we eat, you know, it, 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 it wears off after a while. Um, if you keep giving your cat the same catnip, they're not necessarily going to keep getting as excited by it. And I think it, in the finance world, it plays to young, a, 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 a coterie of young talent coming straight out of school with no real practical experience of working inside companies that learn very clever modeling techniques and your model can spit out pretty much whatever number you want. And when you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis that runs to 2030, um, you know, just as, as an economist would say, assume perfect knowledge of the operating environment between now and 2030. It's like the joke of the economist who's, who's stuck on a, on a life raft with a bunch of cans and, and, and you know, uh, doesn't know what to do. He just says, assume a can opener. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, it, if anything taught, we learned anything from the past two years, it's just making those static assumptions about the operating environment and even the capital markets backdrop you know, it, that's fallacy. And yet everything that kids are schooled in when they come out of business schools or, or training programs at investment banks or private equity firms is to make those straight line assumptions, is to assume that a SaaS software company will never have a customer that goes bust or cancels its contract. It will just keep building the annualized recurring revenue year after year after year that just builds up like an, a nice, gentle slope upwards, never, never hitting the peak. And there'll never be a technical issue with, you know, with, with the product that doesn't work where half the customers ditch it or you get picked off by a, co a competitor who's willing to price to near zero. And, and that sort of dynamic environment is extremely hard to capture in models. I build on to that as well. I think back in academia, just, you know, I was the kid in the classroom at university who was always raising his hand, asking the professor the awkward question. But when you saw some beautiful Greek symboled econometric formula, I went to the end and said, what's that thing in the end, the ET? Oh, that's the error term. 
well, what's in there? That's the stuff we don't understand. Well, let's understand it. <laughs> well, that's not part of your exam paper. But I want to understand it. I was just the counter-economist. You know, what's a dummy variable? Well, that's what we do to make things that don't work, work. Well, that's pretty dumb. That's why we call it a dummy variable. You know, it's some real fundamental problems with the discipline of economics we can get into. But, I mean, it's just, you know, you cannot present these people like the gods who, you know, have, have a monopoly on predicting the future. That, that's complete garbage. It's, it's a crapshoot for them. It's a crapshoot for us. Big data, big mistakes. Trisha Wang, quantification bias. Just taking notes here. <laughs> well, we'll leave some of the links in the show notes for those that want to do some further learning. So Will and Richard have some amazing stories. What were some of their favorites from history around bubbles and troubles? <laughs> well, here's Will Page starting with a story about what's wrong with building your addressable market pitch. On the podcast, we in the early episodes of the podcast, I wanted to build foundation stones. Like, you know, what recurring themes are we going to be keeping on coming back to like a boomerang? discussing as we enter more bubbles with more troubles and you know sycophants and stenographers people who are paid to praise as opposed to appraise companies that, that's that that issue is never going away <laughs> as much as you can know it's going to rain in scotland tomorrow that issue is never going to go away so the one that i really loved and i'll toss the mic to richard kind of walk us through it was discussing the addressable market so when you have companies getting ready for ipo you have that perennial addressable market question this is going to be happening in the past present and forever in the future and you know just how you can cook your books present an unrealistic addressable market and we had one which was a company called blue apron richard um you know mm -hmm. sort of cookery company and you, you want to just walk us through how they got to their their highly robust and well thought out and established addressable market. Sure. And, you know, this is a company that did meal kit deliveries. And I think if I'm not mistaken, I can just check while we're speaking. It has a, its current market cap is something around $30 million, but it IPO'd for several billion. Uh, Arsenal just signed a very bad midfield of $30 million just to give us some footballing context. Yeah. And, and the, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to look up what, what its current value is, but it, it's not very much. And the, the point was, they said, look, we can provide a meal kit for anything, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner to every consumer in the U.S. And the total food market in the U.S. is something like a trillion dollars. And so, yeah, right now, Blue Apron has an $86 million market cap, but it's up 6% today. So there you go. Now, not to belittle the wonderful people who had the idea of doing meal kits and coming to the market with Blue Apron, but just to, just to dream about entering a new market is a long way away from actually being able to address it. And this is something that we're constantly trying to provide a corrective to, where you know, if Will talks about his experience in the music industry, you know, you have millions of incredibly talented musicians that don't get the price of a cup of coffee from all of their work on a weekly basis, from all this whiz-bang technology that has brought all these 60 million tracks to our, to our smartphones to hundreds of millions of people around the world. And why is that? Where does the money go? Are, are these goods just being underpriced? And why, you know, if you think about the addressable market for music, well, it's everyone on the planet, right? But then you start to work your way back and say, so who can afford what? 
and you look at a service like Spotify, just as an example, and you wonder why their ARPUs are going down and you realize the cost of a premium service in Egypt or Nigeria, which they just entered, two of the largest by population markets in Africa, is about a, a, a one euro 30. It's not 10 euros. And then you ask how many people in those markets are really gonna be able to afford that incremental one euro 30 every month. And how many of them are accustomed to paying for these services the way we are in the West? And it's sort of these basic ethnographic questions asking what's behind the assumptions that just, uh, I think that that's kind of almost a lost art asking that stuff these days um, because we're all so besotted with the hype. And just back to Richard's earlier discussion there about choice. Uh, we, we've done a podcast on hyper competition and it's a term that, we're using a lot now, uh, a term that I'll give credit to Paul Sanders, somebody who's far more intelligent than myself, who who looked it in. Hyper-competition is just looking at this explosion of choice. Uh, it's everywhere. You know, we're looking at 75,000 new songs being onboarded streaming services every day. We're looking at two podcasts, two new podcasts, not episodes, two new podcast shows being created every minute. So that's about 40 since we started talking. We're looking at a million new frontlist book titles coming out this year for the first time ever. We're going to go into seven figures on frontlist book titles this year. We're looking at a new Hollywood scripted US drama coming out every week. Um, in fact, more than one a day. I think it's going to get up to 500 this year as well. So this explosion in supply of content, and there has to be some limitations on choice. So I paraphrase Barry Schwartz, the author of the book, The Paradox of Choice, when he famously said, we want some choice as opposed to none. We're not communists here, okay? We, some is better than none, but it doesn't necessarily follow that more choice is better than some. And I really, I've spent a large part of my career studying log normal distributions and trying to make sense of the long tail I cover it in my book. I've been covering it throughout my career, but I think you know, Richard stumbled on this point, which is, when do we get to that point where quantity goes up and quality goes down? When do we have too much choice and it's actually detrimental on how the market actually functions? And I think that's a big one for podcasts. It's a big one for media. It's also a big one for financial markets. You know, you look at the number of funds that are out there in platforms like Hargreaves Lansdowne here in the UK or Vanguard in the US. Do you really need that many funds? Too much choice. Could we have fewer funds and have better picks for your average layman who's trying to work out where to put their retirement savings if we had less choice? So I think you know, universal question here is coming out of media, as so often is the case, you know, music is a microcosm for the, the way that the rest of the world is going to experience in days, years to come. It's the first to suffer, first to recover. But I think we are dealing with a, a paradox of choice here where the quantity is going up and the quality is going down. And we need to work out a way of fixing that. So I would say that's been the biggest lesson I've learned through podcasting with Richard. And I want to get guests on the show to explore this one further. And it's just, it's a topic that's not going to go away. Okay. Well, I feel like this is probably a great place to wrap up. So there's just so much amazing knowledge coming out of that conversation. 
<laughs> Absolutely. I have my reading list for the next couple of months now, actually. But um, okay, so as we wrap, we'll be kicking off season 11 next week. We're calling this season Antitrust. In this season, we're looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly of technology and examining the potential effects of government's attempt to rein in some of the largest companies' global influence. Until next time, we're Michael Saka and I'm Mike Belsito for Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. You can take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product productcollective.com and get access to our newsletter, live video, interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot. Again, just go to productcollective.com.